That clip we watched before is from one of the earliest, perhaps the first episode, I think, of a TV show called The Good Place. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun show that explores life after death and what it actually means to be good. And in it, the main character, her name's Eleanor, Eleanor wakes in a waiting room to a sign that says, relax, everything is fine. And she's brought into the office of Michael, Ted Danson, and she finds out that she's died, but that she's in the good place because she was such a good person. She quickly discovers that they've made a mistake, that her name, Eleanor Shellstrop, and the person who's supposed to be in the good place, Eleanor Shellstrop, are not the same people. She hears that she helped to fight all sorts of diseases in Africa and gave money and did all this great stuff, and she's like, it's a mistake. I'm supposed to be in the bad place. She knows there's no way that she was good enough to make it to the good place. See, this question about what happens to us when we die, it's a puzzling one, I think a puzzling one for all people, really. Maybe you are wrestling with it this morning because there's so many different opinions You've got Kerry Packer who said, I've been to the other side and I can tell you there's no God. You've got the idea of reincarnation, that this is just one of many, many lives that we die and are reborn again. There are views, lots of different views about heaven and hell. Some people just think once you die, you just cease to exist. And if there is a heaven, the question of how to get there There are so many different opinions on too. The good place suggests that only the people who are really, really, really good get to heaven, though how you define good is difficult. It's one of the things that the show explores. In Buddhism, there's the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths that lead you toward nirvana. In Islam, there's the five pillars that if you follow well enough, Allah will welcome you into paradise. In Hinduism, there are three different ways you can achieve what's called moksha. You can go the path of deeds, be good, the path of devotion to a god or the path of wisdom, knowledge, know enough. And then there's Jesus in the midst of all of it. And Jesus says, trust me, trust my life, my life, my death, my resurrection. Follow me and I'll give you eternal life. I actually think for most in our culture, the reality of death is one that we work really hard to avoid, don't we? Very few of us wake up each day and think, my time on this earth is limited. I'd better make the best of it. We might think about that in terms of our day, but we don't often think about it in terms of our life. We find the idea of death because it causes us grief and sorrow, because it is so final, we sort of put it to the side of our minds. And when it comes, I think for many in our culture, death is shocking. It's like you've somehow been betrayed by the universe or by God. It's offensive. I used to work in a high school and I would say to year 12 students before they leave, one of you will be the first to die. And they would all go, and every one of them didn't think it was them. One of them will be wrong. See, we need to come to grips with this sober truth. We will all die. Might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, it might not be the next day, but one day all of us will die. The only exception being if, as Christians believe, Christ returns prior to your death to judge the living and the dead, in which case, I mean, your life as you know it will cease. And I think none of us, none of us in our 
none of us here, I, I would imagine, and none of us in our world, no one wakes up in the morning and thinks, gee, I want to live a pointless life. No one does that. And the reality is the end should shape how we live now. That we will all die should have some impact on the way we live our lives now. Because no one, no one wants to live a life believing one thing about the afterlife, only to die and discover that they were wrong. Yeah? Which brings us to our questions. Why should I listen to Jesus about life after death? Won't being good or following other religions lead people to heaven? Here's my aim today. If you're here wrestling with whether the Christian faith is true or not, I hope to give you some reasons to listen to Jesus, some reasons to keep exploring. And for those of us here who are Christians, I want to help you engage with others on this question well. I want to show you the hope we have and how it should shape your life. And so here's the plan for this morning. I want to start with thinking about how our culture deals with this question of life after death. And then we're going, to, we're going to move towards the second question, thinking about other religions and being good, and then consider why should we listen to Jesus from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll finish with some, some things for us to think about and do as we leave. So let, let's start with our culture. The exclusive claims of Jesus and the Christian faith make many people, including perhaps some of us, quite uncomfortable. The Bible makes big claims, doesn't it? Jesus makes big claims. He says, there's one God who will judge all people. There is a heaven. There is a hell. Jesus, the Bible says, his life, death and resurrection is the only means by which anyone can escape hell and God's judgment. That all of us need to repent of our rebellion against God. That all of us need to trust in Jesus as the only way to be saved. Think of that song that many of you learnt when you were kids. I am the way, the truth and the life. That's what Jesus said. Yes, well done, Helen. Uh, But actually, the next part of the verse is perhaps the most offensive. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's offensive to many people in our world. And many of us struggle with this because the implication is if you don't trust in Jesus, regardless of who you are, You're under the judgment of God. And we struggle with that. It's a right struggle. We should be grieved. It should move us to mission, shouldn't it? That's why Christians for the last 2,000 years have left all sorts of things to go and share the gospel with those who need to hear it. Now, last week we talked a little bit about how our culture doesn't like to disagree, not agreeably. We have a culture of offence. If you disagree with me, therefore you must hate me. And one of the things that I think we struggle is to say that another religion is untrue can be seen as hate speech. It can be seen as bigoted or arrogant or exclusive. Like ours is a culture that gives everyone a trophy lest they be offended. Questions of religion? I think many in our culture, maybe even you, we kind of like the idea that maybe everyone's a little bit right. Maybe everyone's a bit right. Maybe everyone gets to go to the good place. And for many in our culture, if everyone's a little bit right, then I don't, I don't need to test my ideas about life after death. I'm probably a little bit right. And that means that I don't need to change or confront the claims of Jesus or Muhammad or the Buddha or anyone else. Truth 
in our culture has sort of lost some weight, hasn't it? We live in a post-truth world. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. People say, well, I experience that as true. It's hard to know what that means. But truth in our culture has become subjective rather than objective. It's become about what people think or feel rather than what is objectively true. And here's the challenge with that when we're talking about the afterlife. How do you experience it without dying? How can you know the truth about the afterlife unless you've died and gone, oh, I guess that's what it's about? You see, this is, this is an issue, a question that cannot be learnt by our experience. I mean, all of us will learn by our experience, but not this side of death, which means we need something more. Kerry Packer, I've seen the other side. I can tell you there's no God. I mean, you want to trust his oxygen-starved brain, go for it. But I'm not keen on that. And I'm not keen on someone saying, well, I feel like the afterlife is like, is like this because our feelings betray us all the time. We need something more. And so let's turn now to the range of views of the afterlife. Won't being good or other religions get us to heaven? Perhaps the most common solution from Westerners is just to say, well, competing religions, let's give them all a participation award like the seven-year-olds at soccer and everyone can feel good. Let's say that every religion is true. Every religion is all a bit right. The most common, most famous illustration that, uh, that says this, it actually comes from a Hindu parable uh, called the blind, man and, the blind Men and the Elephant. I think I've got a picture up here. Um, you might need to click next on my laptop, Chris, unless my phone will do it. Yeah, you got it there. Thank you. And this, this is how it goes. When it comes to God and truth, there's no exclusive truth. No one's right. Everyone's a bit right. So one blind man, he grabs the tail and he says, it's a rope. One says it's a wall. One says it's a fan. It's a spear. It's a snake. It's a tree. You get the idea? Religions are like this. Every religion is trying to clutch at some bit of God or some bit of truth and they come to different conclusions. But there's no one religion that's right. They all have a small piece of the truth. That's how the argument goes. Because the idea of exclusive truth is too narrow. Do you see the problem with this illustration? There's, there's some pretty inherent problems here. See, the person who claims that all religions only have a little bit of the truth, that there's no exclusive truth claim, they're making an exclusive truth claim. In their illustration, all religions are blind, but they see the whole elephant. They haven't applied their logic to themselves. They're actually doing the exact thing that they say no one can do. They say no one can have a whole view on truth, but they themselves say, actually, I have the whole view on truth. Everyone is blind except for me. You can, you can get rid of that now, Chris. Here, here's the reality. All world religions, all the major world religions, are what's called mutually exclusive. That is, if Christianity is true, the rest aren't. If Islam is true, the rest aren't. If Buddhism is true, the rest aren't. And so to apply this to our question is really tricky. Like I kind of wrote the question, so 
it's not the greatest of questions because it actually doesn't do justice to the world's major religions. They, they have different beliefs of the afterlife. Some religions have no view on heaven or hell. Did you know that? In Hinduism, you just keep going through the, the process of reincarnation and rebirth with the hope that one day you might escape it. And you don't escape to a heaven paradise. You attain something called moksha. You, you become integrated with what's called Brahman. In Buddhism, the aim is just to get rid of desire because if you get rid of desire, you get rid of suffering. You don't suffer anymore. And if you don't desire anything, you might reach nirvana, but you're not allowed to desire nirvana because you've got to get rid of all your desires. It's a bit tricky. And those religions that do, say, for example, Islam has a, has a very clear concept of heaven and hell, it's not the same as the biblical version. It's not. We're not talking about the same things when you talk about an Islamic view of heaven and hell and a Christian one. And as much as we, won't, as much as we might like the idea that everyone is right, none of the major world religions allow it. And I actually think we do an injustice to them when we say that they're the same. I think we misrepresent them. I think the best way to honour people in our world who have different views than ours is actually as best as we can to understand them. To understand them in such a way that we could articulate to another person what they believe and then say, yes, you've understood me. Until you get to that point, you can't actually have a decent conversation about whether what they believe and what you believe are true or not. What about being good? Let's assume for a second that Christians worship a God who is real, that there is a heaven and hell. For many in our culture, they say, won't being good be enough? It's a prominent idea. We have many in Australia from our census data that says many Australians consider themselves spiritual but not religious. Many identify with the Christian religion. Overall, Christianity is still the most held religion in Australia, not for much longer, but it is for now. But most of those people who identify as Christians could be described as nominal, those who don't regularly attend church or or practice their religion in any clear way. It it sort of turns into, in our culture, I think, those, those nice statements that we make at funerals, like he or she is watching over us or he or she is with the angels now which is kind of lovely and understandable but devoid of substance or reason. It's something that we tell ourselves to deal with our sorrow. Pictures God far more like Santa than the God revealed in the Bible. And if we, if we go down the line, okay, being good gets you to heaven. Well, being good according to who? In the TV show The Good Place, being good is really complex. One of the characters is a professor of ethics, And so he spends a whole lot of time talking about the philosophy of ethics. That is, you can actually do some really good things for really bad reasons. And how do we measure goodness? Do we measure the result or the heart, the intent? Who decides whether you're good or not? Do you? Does God? See, the Bible's picture of human goodness is actually quite bleak. We read it at the start of the service. There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3 says, all have turned away. All have turned away from God. You see, what we humans do, I do this, I'm pretty sure most of us do this, is we compare ourselves and rate our goodness to other people 
who we know aren't as good as us. Am I the only one who does this sometimes, right? So if we want to feel good about ourselves, we find something in someone else and we know that they don't do that thing as well as we do, and so we just, we just start to feel good about ourselves. We certainly, we try and avoid comparing ourselves to people who we know are better, but imagine if you compare yourself to a holy God whose standard is perfection. How are you going to come up? You're going to come up short. It's why really, really good people bug us. You ever had that experience? A friend, a family member, a work colleague who's just always good? They're just a really, really good, morally upright person. And you find something in your soul just trying to find ways to hate them. And it's not just because they're so good. It's because they expose you. Because when you're around them, you and your flaws are exposed. They make you see yourself for what you are. And the truth is, if we're honest, all of us are selfish, aren't we? When you get the photo back, the school picture, the family photo, the whatever photo, who do you look for first? We all look for ourselves first. We do. Every year the school photos came back, I'd look for myself first and then I'd look for who looked dumb, who had their eyes shut. I still remember one year 10 photo. One kid was looking up, one kid was completely looking at the side and I just wish they had shown us all the ones that they didn't give us. They must have been far worse. And we lie to ourselves all the time. We tell ourselves that we're really good. We've lied but we don't consider ourselves liars. But when others lie, they're a liar, but we're not a liar. We're a good person. You know, just watch your actions and thoughts for a day. Watch them for a week. Aren't there things that you think that you would be mortified if anyone found out? Oh, man, there's things that I've thought this week that if you knew, goodness me, our thoughts betray us. We're all ashamed of something. And if heaven is a place full of good people like me, good people like me that are unchanged, I just got to say, I don't think it's going to be that heavenly. I don't know that you would want to hang out with me for all eternity unless God does a complete and utter transforming work in my life. And so right from Genesis 3, the Bible says we're rebels and sinners, we can't save ourselves. And this actually does, I think, make sense of the world. Apart from this truth, the Bible doesn't make sense because Jesus shows up and dies in the place of sinners. He doesn't die to be a good moral example for us to follow. He He dies to rescue us. Other religions, they say be good, follow the rules, ascend to God, ascend to Nirvana, ascend to Brahman, ascend to heaven. But the Christian faith says, you got no chance. And God descends dies in our place. Christianity says you're dead in your sin, you're a corpse. And only the miraculous regenerating work of God, only the work of Christ on the cross can take a corpse and bring it to life, can take a mess like me, transform me bit by bit in this life and one day fully when I die. God shows mercy and kindness. Uh, Prominent Christian author Tim Keller, he says that we're far far more wicked than we realise, and God loves us far more than we could hope for or imagine. So being good, that ain't going to get you to heaven. Other religions, well, I guess in some ways, I'll leave it up to you to do some more 
research or you might want to ask some questions. But the truth is that none of the, none of the major world religions would ag- agree with the premise that following a different religion will get you to their place that's called heaven. It's far more complex. So let's, let's turn to our bigger question. Why listen to Jesus on life after death? Here is the very simple reason. You probably knew that it was coming. It's because he rose from the dead. That's why we should listen to Jesus on life after death. 1 Corinthians 15, it was written in the mid-50s. I think we talked a little bit about this as we looked at the history three weeks back. And in it, we see the heart of the Christian faith. Have a look with me from verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That fallen asleep means died. So at the heart of the gospel, Jesus died for our sin according to the Old Testament, was buried, rose on the third day according to the Old Testament. That's the heart of the Christian faith. What's amazing about this passage, I think I did mention this a few weeks ago, that Paul received it. Now he was converted to Christianity a year or two after Jesus' resurrection, which means this creed, Christ's death, burial, resurrection, was already in place and being circulated widely within the first year or two of the Christian faith. The resurrection is preached from the start. And these names, Peter, the 12, another 500, James, James, that's the brother of Jesus. Now, if you can convince one of your siblings that you are God risen from the dead, you have done well. Because I would not worship my brother. He's great. I love him. But he will never be able to convince me that he's God. In fact, the Gospels tell us that Jesus' brothers didn't believe he was anything special and that it was Jesus' resurrection appearance to his brother James that seems to transform him. But the implication for early readers here is, in the 50s, well, go ask them. If you really want to find out whether Jesus rose from the dead, go and search these people out. Go ask them your questions. See, this historical event is at the heart of the Christian faith. Now, as we work through this passage in verse 12, it's pretty clear some in Corinth didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought there was no resurrection of the dead, no life after death. And Paul starts to pull it apart from verse 12. Have a look with me. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? The point being, if there's no resurrection of the dead, well, Christ wasn't raised then. And then he goes through the implications. If Christ isn't raised, verse 14, our preaching is in vain. It's pointless. Your faith, in vain, pointless. He goes on to say, we've been misrepresenting God. Now, for a Jew, that's a big deal. That's a dangerous thing to do. You don't mess with the God of the Old Testament. You don't mess with the God of the Bible. You don't misrepresent him. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then we're still in our sin which means condemned under God's judgment. Those died trusting in God's judgment, those who've fallen asleep in Christ, that means they died as Christians. Well, they're doomed too. In fact, I love verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love this because the Bible tells you how to write off Christianity. 
The Bible tells you how to disprove the Christian faith. I mean, we're talking about history here. It's very difficult to talk about proving. That's a scientific term. But the Bible tells you what is at the heart of the Christian faith and what you need to wrestle with to work out whether it's true or not, and it's the resurrection. But it won't let you do it easily. See, look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, I'm told, because I'm not really a great fruit grower, we have some fruit trees in our backyard, but they're not that healthy. Uh, but I'm told that the first fruits on a tree or a crop give an indication of the rest that are to come. If the first fruit's healthy, the rest are going to be healthy. If the first fruit not so good, unlikely that the rest of the season's going to be much top either. The point of this, Paul is saying... Christ's resurrection is an indication of what our resurrection, those who trust in him, will be like. But notice, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then our preaching is not pointless and our faith is not in vain. We are not misrepresenting God. We are not still doomed in our sin. Those who've died trusting Christ are saved. We are not to be the most pitied people on the planet because Christ has been raised. You know, our culture loves experts, don't we? So bushfires rage and we want climate experts and we want hazard reduction experts and we want firefighting experts. We want to hear from the experts. And our culture loves lived experience. We want to hear from those who've lived through things to understand what they've done. So when it comes to life after death, Christ is the only expert. He's the only one who's died and come back to tell us about it. He's the only one with lived experience of death and resurrection. The only one who can actually tell us about it, having lived it and experienced it himself. And the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is this is a, this is a historical claim. It's, there's evidence here that can be tested. If you're sceptical of the resurrection, which is fair enough, because every person I've ever known who's died has not come back to life. My guess is that's true for all of us. The idea that a bloke would be raised from the dead seems quite unlikely. But the evidence can be tested. You know, history tells us, and this is a very historical statement, that the tomb of Jesus was very probably empty. That's what John Dixon would say. That is nothing in history you can say definitely, bang, but very probably the evidence is very clear that Jesus' tomb was empty. It never became a sacred site for worship. If the tomb was still full, you'd just open it up and say, here's the corpse, because they preached the resurrection from the start. Stop saying he rose from the dead. Here's his stinky corpse. The disciples were all convinced, proclaimed it at great cost, all of them, You can imagine one or two in their grief getting some crazy ideas, losing the plot and go off claiming ridiculous things, but all of them at great cost. Christianity grew remarkably on the back of this claim, despite persecution and no promise of worldly gain for a couple of hundred years. Once Constantine becomes the Roman emperor, adopts Christianity, later there's some gain for Christians to be had in the Roman world, but up until that point, very little. So why should we listen to Jesus on life after death? He's the, only, he's the only expert. He's the only one who's experienced it. He's the only one who's died and come back to life to tell us about it. Let's finish with some implications, some applications. For those of you exploring the Christian faith, can I please encourage you, the Bible has told you how to either write Christianity off or confirm that it's true. That's so, help, that's so helpful. 
And so consider the resurrection, explore it. If it's true, it changes everything. Jesus is at the heart of the Christian faith. His resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith. Christianity stands or falls on that truth. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul, the apostle, says where to be more pitied and your faith is pointless. But if he did rise from the dead, he's the Lord of the universe. Anyone who says, I'm the son of God, I've come to die for the sins of the world and on the third day I rise, that's a big claim. Anyone who says that and backs it up is worth listening to. Let me suggest three ways you can do that. One, read one of the Gospels. Read the Gospel of Luke. We have free copies out um, in the courtyard after the service. Read Luke's account of Jesus' life and see for yourself whether it sounds plausible or real or true. So many of us have had the experience of reading scriptures and experiencing that God has shown himself to us through it. Maybe if you're checking out the Christian faith and a friend's brought you along, just ask them very kindly to buy you one of those books. (laughs) Maybe it's Jesus' history or confronting Christianity. I'm sure they'll be happy to help. If they're not, come tell me. Or come along to our life course. It starts in February. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, who Jesus is, 26th of Feb, come along. Check out Jesus' life. For all of us, I want to encourage all of us to not shy away from our mortality, to not shy away from death. See, because of Jesus, death doesn't get the last say. His resurrection is the death sentence for death. Death is not done with us yet, yeah? It still sings. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, then once the resurrection, the final resurrection occurs, then we'll say, where, O death, is your victory, where, O death, is your sting. Today we still feel it, don't we? Some of us feel it every day. But death is doomed. You know, the back half of 1 Corinthians 15, the bits that we didn't read, they promise a future resurrection. It doesn't fix everything now. We don't go to funerals and not cry because of the resurrection. It's right to grieve. Death is still not what we long for. But we grieve with hope because Christ is risen. If you're not yet a Christian here today, I want to encourage you, you won't find a deeper hope anywhere else. For those of us who are Christians, can I encourage you, cling to the resurrection. And this might be offensive to some of you, but it's true for all of us. We, We should make it our aim to die well, to die with hope holding on to Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, maybe you need to reevaluate the goals of your life. Maybe you've made the goals of your life really small, like small things like becoming a billionaire, small things like becoming the CEO of your company, small things like having the big house or the fancy car. You see, if we all die, if eternity awaits, we need to aim and dream bigger, Bigger than the car or career or spouse or family. Well, we need we need bigger. Bigger than travel or fun or pleasure. Big like seeking his kingdom come. Big like praying and sharing the gospel with your neighbor. Your colleague, your friend. Big goals like using your time and resources for his kingdom and not yours. Big goals like seeing Campbelltown transformed by the resurrection hope that comes from the gospel. 
If you've still got your Bible open, which I hope you do, flick to the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read the last verse of this chapter. Paul has just talked about the sting of death, the victory, where death will be swallowed up. He says, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death. And listen to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. If you're a Christian and you sometimes find that doing what God tells you to do, serving in your home or serving in the life of the church is pointless, Paul reminds us that it's not. I cling to that verse. Your labour is not in vain. Because of the resurrection to come, all that we do in service of others and our God is not pointless. It's actually glorious. We're called to be steadfast and persevere, to keep on going. Life sometimes feels like the last K of a long run and you just want to quit. Sometimes you just feel like you've lost your breath and you need to curl up in a ball. Now, sometimes you do. But the call on us as Christians is because of the resurrection, we're not to give up. We're not to give up following Jesus. We're not to give up serving. We're to carry on knowing that our labour is not in vain. Why listen to Jesus on life after death? There's no amount of points that you can earn from good deeds that will save you. Jesus came to die for us and to rise. Only one who's conquered death and risen is worth listening to.